probably the last one we've seen in terms of American history of a, a, an Elijah-type prayer, a prayer that brought about the very last great awakening in America. And it began on September 23, 1857. America at that time was in desperate economic depression, far worse than the 1920s. The nation was divided over the slavery issue. There was an economic panic, or what they call run on the banks, and the banks had to close. There were hundreds of thousands of people out of work. Public drunkenness was a commonplace all across the land. And at the height of all of that, a small businessman, he was not a prominent wealthy man, but as a small businessman in New York City, felt led of the Lord to start praying for America. And for that purpose, he rented a room in the Northern Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in Lower Manhattan. The first meeting got into a very inauspicious start. He was the only one there. Half an hour later, a second person showed up, and a few minutes later, two more showed up. But Jeremiah Lamphere would not give up. As a matter of fact, he claimed Zechariah 4.10, do not despise the day of small things. And he kept claiming that of the Lord. Lamphere basically started, had about five rules about that prayer meeting. He said, the first thing is, they're not going to be preaching or theological debates. Imagine that, having no preaching. Can God work without preachers? And the second thing he said, that um, the participants are welcome from all evangelical backgrounds, denominations. Third thing he said, the meeting will begin promptly at noon and end up promptly at one o'clock. Then he said that nobody was allowed to pray for more than five minutes maximum. And they are to specifically pray for awakening in America. And so, the first week, they had about 11 people. And then, the second week, had 20. The third week, there were 40. And by the fifth week, they decided to move from having a weekly prayer meeting to having a daily prayer meeting at the lunch hour from 12 to 1. And that there was so many people in Manhattan area, New York area, began to take the lunch hour and go and attend. And it's become known as the Fulton Street prayer meeting, even though within a matter of weeks it began to grow all over Manhattan, and then later on nationwide, and eventually Wales and England. When non-believers would come to these meetings, they immediately come under convictions, and they would repent of their sins and converted to Christ. Within a couple of weeks, it was recorded that upward of one million decisions for Christ were made. Not only that, but there are many mission organizations and many ministries that sprang out of that simple prayer meeting. Organizations that you'll be familiar with, some you will not, but there was one called the Student Volunteer Movement that sprang out of that movement that thousands of young people gave themselves to missions all over the world. 
Every time I'm reminded of this, which is very often, <laughs> I ask myself the question, and really the question really haunts me. With all of the books that we have on prayer, and with all of the teaching and the preaching on the subject of prayer, do we really, really seriously believe that God responds to such prayer? I really think that's a question that ought to haunt every one of us. A lot of people talk about the power of prayer. Even some people are not believers talk about the power of prayer. There's no power in prayer. There is power in the God who responds to the prayer of faith. I think that's what they mean. And it is not a surprising, therefore, in the closing lines of the epistle of James that he concludes his epistle with the subject of prayer. This is the twelfth and the last evidence of faith. What is it? Believing in God to respond to faithful prayer. Let me tell you why the Apostle James is very qualified to talk about prayer. And he left that all the way to the end. He was truly known to be the man of prayer. In fact, his claim to fame is not the fact that he was the head of the Jerusalem church. And it's not that he was the head of the Jerusalem council that we read about in Acts chapter 15. But the historians tell us that his real claim to fame that he was a man of prayer so much so, he prayed so much that his knees became like a camel knees. In fact, his nickname was Camel Knee James. But what a wonderful reputation to have. What a great nickname to be known as. Old Camel Knee James. Think about it. What a great honor. Well, people see him going by and say, There goes Camel Knees James. In Acts chapter 12, where Peter was arrested and put in prison, and the church were meeting in John Mark's mother's house. She always had a big house, and the church was gathering in her house to pray for God to supernaturally release Peter from prison. And so they were praying, Lord, release Peter, supernaturally, powerfully release Peter. So Peter gets released supernaturally. An angel comes in, open the gates, and Peter get out. So he goes out, he goes to the prayer meeting and knocks on the door. And the servant girl runs into the prayer meeting and says, Peter at the door. No, 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 you're imagining things. We're praying for Peter. <laughs> Have you ever done that? We're praying. I mean, how, how come? Couldn't be Peter. Must be a double. But there's something there I don't want you to miss. In verse 17 of James 12, here's what Peter said. He said, go and tell James and the brothers what the Lord has done. Why James? Because Peter knew that all camel knees is on his knees on his behalf. And he wanted to tell him what God has done. Four things here that the Apostle James gives us as this twelfth evidence of faith. First, in verse 13, he says, pray always. I'm going to come back to that. Secondly, in verses 14 and 15, he says, pray for one another. And then thirdly, he comes to verses 16 to 18, and he said, pray the kind of prayer that releases God's power, that brings about answers to prayer. And fourthly, he says, Pray 
for you and for others that they may remain faithful to the Lord. First, he said, pray all times. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Any of you happy? should praise. You see, James understood, like most of us understand, that when you're in trouble, when you're going through tough times, we can become real great prayer warriors. We pray hard and we pray diligently. When we are going through tough times, when we want something from God, we want God to answer. We're at every prayer meeting. We're asking people to pray for us. When we are pressed by our circumstances, uh, when we come to the end of ourselves, we pray, and we become great prayer people, men, women, boys and girls. And what James is saying is that when God answers your prayer, that you should be as serious and as diligent and as intentional in praising God as much as you were when you were petitioning God. That's what he's saying. The problem with spiritual immaturity is that when we want God, we ask, and we ask, and we ask. And then when God answers our prayer, we may, just may, say, thank you, God, and run off until we need Him again. Now, let me illustrate this. Many of you are parents at different stages. So those with young children, you, hopefully you learn something. <laughs> when our children were little, and they were like all little ones and pester you for something. They want something. Dad, can I get this? Dad, can I get this? Mom, can I get this? Mom, can I get And then you think about it and you give them the best. Not exactly what they ask. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. You give them what you know is best for them. And then they say, thank you, and they run off, and that's it. Until they need something else. But that's okay because they're children. That's immature chronologically. When they grow up, they change. They become a little bit more sophisticated in their requests. When they go to college, now some of them were better calling home than others, but they often, when they call home and they want something, they start to say, Dad, I love you. See, they become a little bit more sophisticated. My answer often always, how much? <laughs> Not how much you love me, how much money you want. But you see, that's okay. That's okay because that's how now that they are men and women mature, their parents themselves, all that's changed. James is saying it's okay to pray and petition God in the time of suffering. Don't you stop asking God in the times of trouble. Don't you stop asking God to bring your needs to Him. Keep on doing it, but please praise Him with the same intensity and with the same desire, with the same diligence, and with the same persistence when He answers your prayer. Now, here's a major problem with some believers— and I'm saying some, not everybody. You can identify with it, whether you are or you're not. There are some people when they're facing tough times, difficult times, instead of pressing hard toward the heart of God, they withdraw fellowship from God. They stop praying. Are you one of those? Listen carefully. Just when they need to be closest to God, they run away from Him. 
some Christians do that, and you wonder why. Why they do this? At least there are two reasons. They're both are really either false view of God or false view of what suffering is. First, many Christians have the wrong view of suffering. They think that if they have been dealt a powerful blow or a setback in life, then God must be angry with them. And because kids learn to avoid and get away from an angry parent, they avoid God because they think God is angry with them. Now, this is a faulty view of understanding God and the grace of God in life. I'm talking about Christians. I'm talking about believers. I'm talking about people who have been born again, saved by grace. I'm not talking about somebody outside the church. But the reason they do that every time they're in trouble, they get away from God instead of getting closer to God, is because they have never let go of the feeling of guilt and shame and inadequacy of their past sins. That's why. And so when God pursues them, trying to enfold them in His gracious arm, they think that God is out there to punish them. When he's trying to enfold them into his loving arms to say, I love you, I care for you, I forgave your sins, my son paid for your sins on the cross, they run away from the loving God like a frightened, guilty child. The second thing is that many people stay away from God in times of trouble because they are angry with God. Now, whether they are going through financial crisis or whether they're going through some health issues, now, whether they're going through some setbacks of some sort in life, they become angry with God. (laughs) And listen to me, Satan loves it when a believer is angry with God. He really does. He feels that he's got you exactly where he wants you. Why? Because that way he can get them to rationalize sin and rebellion. (laughs) How? How does Satan do that? Listen carefully. He comes to the person and he says, you know, listen, Snookums, whatever your name is, you need to get back at God for not doing this or not doing that or the other thing. Asaph was a great musician. He was the head of the choir for King David. Wonderful composer. Wrote lots of wonderful psalms. And in Psalm 73, he looked at how the wicked seemed to be prospering and the righteous are suffering, and he got angry with God. He said, I'm wasting my righteous living. I've been good to God. How come God cannot be good to me? And then God graciously takes him and let him see the eternity and what's going to happen to those so-called prospering wicked people And then in the end, he says, oh, Lord, I am sorry. I was a donkey. That's a a Semitic way of saying, I was stupid, (laughs) spiritually stupid, and I'm deeply sorry. Years ago, a child psychologist told me this. I have never forgotten it, and I'll never forget it. He said, the number one reason some teenagers get into trouble, whether it will be cutting themselves or pornography or, or, or whatever, sexual uh, illicitness or addiction of any kind, he said, the number one reason is that they convince themselves that their parents don't love them. And if they convince themselves that the parents don't love them, they can justify their rebellion and sin. 
Listen, that's how some believers behave. That's how some believers react. They say, God doesn't love me. And Satan loves it. Amazing to me how when the Apostle Paul and Silas in Philippi preaching the gospel, they get beaten until they were bleeding, and then they're put in a prison. And not one time they ever looked up to heaven and said, wait a minute, God, we've been good to you. (laughs) We're preaching the gospel. We didn't do anything wrong. Look at the suffering we're going through. No, the Bible said they were praising God in the prison, so much so that the prison shook and the gates were open. And as a result, the Philippian jailer was converted, and the revival took place in that city. Pray in the times of trouble does at least three things. It's an antidote to loneliness. It is a reminder that God is in control, and it helps us see things and circumstances from God's perspective, not ours. Back in 1855, an Irish poet by the name of Joseph Scriven composed a hymn that is known to most of us, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Most people don't realize that that hymn came out of the furnace of affliction. (laughs) You see, Joseph was engaged to be married not just once, but twice. His first fiancée drowned in the day before the wedding supposed to take place. The second time he got engaged, his fiancée died of pneumonia. And you imagine the girls in town are running away from him. (laughs) And in the end, he decided that he's going to dedicate his life 24-7 to serving the Lord. Far from being angry with God, he gave his whole to God. In fact, he wrote that song originally as a poem for his mother to comfort her when he left Ireland and went to Canada. But then some of the stanzas was added later. Have we trials and temptations? Have we trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Pray all the times. Secondly, he said, pray for one another. Pray for one another, verses 14 and 15. Is any of you sick? You should call the elders of the church and pray over him and anoint him with oil and in the name of the Lord. See, James speaking about the person who's so sick he couldn't go to church. And he talks about the oil because the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit's power to heal. Now, I think some of you know this, but I want to tell you anyway. This particular verse is talking about the faith of the elders, not the faith of the sick person. Now, I am not minimizing the the faith of of the sick person, but I want to tell you, at least in this passage, he's talking about the faith of the elders. And what just this prayer of faith is all about? What is that all about? It is the belief expressed in prayer by the elders of the church, namely that our sovereign God is in the business of healing people. It is the belief that the option for healing remains in God's hands, not ours. It is the belief that when we do pray, 
We do not order God to do something like a genie. <laughs> it is the belief that we submit to the sovereign will of God. It is the belief that God, is, it, it, it's His prerogative to heal or not, not an obligation. It is the belief that our obligation is to petition God and then trust Him fully for the outcome. Pray at all times. Pray for each other. Thirdly, he said, pray the prayer that releases the power of God in answer prayer. Talk about misunderstood verse. <laughs> Therefore, confess your sins to each other, and the prayer of the righteous man, as in the old translation said, availeth much. This is powerful and effective. What does that mean? Confess your sins to one another. Now, here's the sad part. It is fashionable in some circles in this 21st century church in the West to take, to take this to mean that you got to hang out all your dirty laundry for everyone to see. Tell everybody every sin you committed. I'm aware of some groups that practice this travesty and ended up destroying many a marriage because of this public revelation. They think that this verse means you got to be total honesty. And they think total honesty means that you tell everything. I want you to listen carefully, please. Because that is a total misunderstanding of this verse. <laughs> because when you do that, where is the focus? The focus is on sin, not on the power of God to forgive sin. When you focus on that, and when you focus on the sin, not the power of God to forgive sins, the devil can use that to drag you back to sin. So what does it mean, confessing your sin one to another? Listen very carefully. <laughs> First, you must begin confession of sin to God. Because ultimately, every sin is a sin against God. The psalmist in Psalm 51 said, Against you, and only you have I sinned. And that is why 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Secondly, we confess our sin only to the people who are affected by our sin. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, He said, If you go to the altar and you're about to offer your gift, and then you remember you hurt somebody. You said you did something wrong. And you leave them there and not stand up in the middle of the temple and say, Hey, guys, I've done this and this and the other thing. He said, No, go to the person. <laughs> you go to the person that you wronged, and you confess to him or her. The third thing I want to tell you is this. We should never confess our sins beyond those who have been impacted by our sins. Private sins require private confession to God and to the individual who's been hurt by our sin. Why is this so important? Listen to me. Why, well, why I'm spending time? Why? Because such accurate and biblical confession releases the power of God. You see, when you don't confess your sin, you create a barrier between you and God. Now, God does not put the barrier. Now, don't blame God for that. God never moves. Uh, God never changes. But we place a barrier between us and God. When we confess our sin, what we are doing? 
we come in agreement with God because God knows what happened anyway. God knows our sin anyway. And therefore, when I come in agreement with God, I said, God, I am deeply sorry. I repent. Please forgive me. James said there is a secret of blessing when you come in agreement with God. There's a power in agreement. Imagine the power of agreement with God. <laughs> Listen, if we don't keep short accounts with God, every time we pray we're going to feel like heaven is like iron and the earth is like a brass. We're not going anywhere. The psalmist said, if I incline a sin in my heart, that is, if I don't confess my sin, God will not hear me. <laughs> that barrier that we have created by our sin. Here's something I want to tell you you must never, never, never forget. Those believers who are not growing spiritually, it is because they have a casual attitude towards sin. They really do. They have a casual attitude towards sin. But sometimes you have to ask the question, what keeps a person from confessing to God and confessing to the person that they're wrong? What keeps them from asking for forgiveness. Well, sometimes it's because of pride. We don't want to say we're wrong. We don't want to say, I'm sorry. Pride plays a dominant role. Other times, because of fear. We always say, well, what's going to happen if that person withdraws forgiveness from me? What's going to happen if that person rebuffs me? What's going to happen if that person deliberately turns around and hurts me? Let me tell you something. It is worth it. It is worth it to be able to receive the blessing of God and the power that He releases in answer to prayers. It's worth it. The blessing of confession and seeking forgiveness. And sometimes it's just general dishonesty. We, like Adam, you know, we try to hide from God and hide from others and even hide from ourselves. We'd rather cover up than confess. But that's why James is saying that it is vitally important to confess. It's vitally important. Why? He gives us the answer in verse 16. Healing will take place when we do. (laughs) What kind of healing is he talking about? It is the healing that comes from mending our fellowship with God, from mending our fellowship with one another. Look at the last line of verse 16. The prayer of the righteous. You have to ask, who are the righteous? Listen carefully. All the believers are righteous in some way because we have no righteousness of ourselves when we came to the Lord Jesus Christ and received Him as Savior and Lord. The Bible said Jesus imputes His righteousness upon us. So we only have an imputed righteousness. All the believers do. But I know, and you know, not all believers walk in that righteousness. And that is why he's saying, when we have short accounts with God, when we confess, that is the righteousness that pleases God. And that's why the prayer of the righteous, not a special super saint, not a pastor or an elder, but anybody who is walking in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who's confessing and keeping short accounts and not holding grudges and not building grudges, that person, his prayer and her prayer are going to be answered. See, that's the power that God releases as a result of us keeping short accounts. And that's why he goes on to tell us about Elijah. Elijah was intimate with God. Elijah was attuned to the mind of God. Elijah would not allow anything to come between him and God. Elijah knew the mind of God so much so that when he prayed, God released his power. 
But Elijah was far from perfect. Let me give you a Yusuf translation. Elijah was flawed like all of us. <laughs> I know it's a rough translation, but that's really what he meant. But he would not allow a barrier to build between him and God. Elijah knew God. He trusted God fully. He obeyed God even when his knees were knocking. <laughs> Pray all the times. Pray for others. Pray that prayer that releases the power of God. And fourthly, pray that you and others remain faithful. Verses 19 and 20. If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, he said, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. Do you know someone who's wandering from the Lord right now? Someone who's wandering from the fold of God? You may be a person here today who had wandered away from the fold of God, and God brought you here for a purpose to hear this message, because God is pursuing you. He wants you to come into His embrace. He's not pursuing you so He punishes you. He's pursuing you so He may bring you in and hold you and enfold you. If you know someone that you try to restore and bring back to the truth, and for whatever reason they're not responsive, listen to me very carefully. Here's what you need to know. Don't ever give up praying for that person. Don't ever surrender his or her soul. Keep asking for the opportunity to restore the brother or the sister. Your prayer will cover a multitude of sin. In all of this, there's something of vital importance. He's saying that love does not sweep sin under the carpet. It doesn't. And where there is love, there is truth. And where there is truth, there is an honest confession. Where there is honest confession of sin, there is cleansing and forgiveness and power. I know that some people feel trapped. And when they feel trapped, they panic. That became real for me. Elizabeth and I were in Beirut, Lebanon, and we're coming down the elevator, and right in there between floors, the elevator stopped. <laughs> you know, people always, when an elevator stops, have you ever been in that situation? They panic. They really do, because they feel trapped, and they panic. I'm told this is a natural thing you do <laughs> when you feel trapped, is to panic. I looked and there was a button that says emergency button. I just pushed the button. And a voice came in. At least I said, oh, I can, with my broken Arabic, I can talk to the guy on the other side. And I pushed the button, and immediately the voice came, what's wrong? What can we do? I said, we're stuck. <laughs> we need help. Beloved, I know in the spiritual life, Sometimes people feel trapped. They may feel trapped in an illness. They may feel trapped in a financial circumstances not their own doing. They may feel trapped in past sins. They may feel trapped in some opposition and, and scorn of others. They may feel trapped in, in a, one form of addiction or another. And when you feel trapped, the natural tendency is to panic. But don't do the natural. Do the supernatural. There's some natural tendency is to lose your head or, or you pound and you scream or, or imagine the worst. <laughs> that is why 
don't forget there is an emergency button. It's called prayer. And you can pray to the one who has limitless power, who listens to you 24-7. The one who loves you more than anyone is able to love you. Take it from all camel knees. (laughs) The prayer of the righteous availeth much. After confession and cleansing and restoration, God's power is going to be released in you. The question is, are you ready? Maybe you need to make a trip and see someone. Maybe you need to make some phone calls. Only you know what you're supposed to do in order to receive the forgiveness and the restoration And I cannot tell you, I mean, I can't even imagine what God can do when His children are confessing, cleansed, and open to the power working in them. Father, I thank You for Jesus' half-brother James. I thank You for the Holy Spirit that inspired him to write all these words so many years ago. And so that here we are today, in the 21st century, we can set and be blessed and challenged and convicted and so that we may go about experiencing the power that God longs to give us in serving Him and in doing His work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.